Hi, listeners. It's Kate from the Spotify original from Parcast, Dictators. Like many of the figures we cover on our show, J. Edgar Hoover had a thirst for control that couldn't be satisfied until he reached the top. As the first director of the FBI, Hoover used his authority to admonish anyone he felt broke the law. But with great power often comes great corruption and even greater conspiracies. Carter and I are thrilled to bring you this special six-part crossover from Dictators and Conspiracy Theories on the life and career of J. Edgar Hoover. You can hear about more of history's most feared leaders by following Dictators free on Spotify. The 1964 election was approaching, and sitting President Lyndon B. Johnson was out for glory. LBJ was favored to win. With his support, Congress had passed the long-overdue Civil Rights Act that summer. The bill sent a glimmer of hope across America. Johnson's opponent, Republican Senator Barry Goldwater, had voted against the Civil Rights Act, showing little interest in addressing the nation's racism and violence. And yet, Johnson wasn't confident with his odds. He wanted to win by such a crushing margin that it proved America had chosen him, that he wasn't just president by default after JFK's untimely death. So Johnson did something inconceivable. He enlisted the FBI to help him wage a smear campaign against his opponent. And at the helm of this mission was the director, because if anyone could get away with spying on the Goldwater campaign, it was J. Edgar Hoover. Welcome back to J. Edgar Hoover, a six-part podcast special presented by Dictators and Conspiracy Theories. Over the course of this series, we're diving into the life, legacy, and notoriety of America's most well-known and possibly most hated FBI director. I'm your host, Carter. And I'm your host, Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Last time, we left off with Lyndon Johnson's arrival to the White House and the FBI's efforts to cover up their culpability in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Today, we'll dive into the strange relationship between LBJ and the director. The two clashed over enforcing civil rights protections and navigating the war in Vietnam. Ultimately, while Johnson would come to rely on Hoover unlike any president before him, the director was still unwilling to meet his superiors halfway. We'll have all that and more right after this. 
Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything. So you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Unlike the strong ideological divide between J. Edgar Hoover and the Kennedys, the director's relationship with Lyndon Johnson started out more amicable, and it dated back much further than many knew. Hoover and Johnson had been neighbors for years. They lived on Washington, D.C.'s 30th place, a tree-lined block of brick colonials. Hoover regularly visited the Johnsons for breakfast, and LBJ eventually named the family's beagle Edgar after the director. But their bond was most evident in their professional lives. According to journalist Tim Weiner, once Johnson was in the White House, he, quote, leaned on Hoover harder than any president ever had in matters of national security, foreign policy, and political intrigue. A week after Kennedy was shot, Johnson told Hoover, You're my brother. You have been for 25 years. This meant that even though federal law mandated Hoover retire by his 70th birthday, Johnson was looking out for him. During a press conference from the Rose Garden, LBJ announced his decision to waive the employment cap for the position, which allowed Hoover to continue serving. However, from the director's side at least, the camaraderie was a facade. Hoover, who hadn't lost any of his signature malice or manipulation, had been gathering dirt on Johnson ever since the president's Senate days. For instance, when LBJ bought a radio station in Austin, the IRS didn't seem inclined to investigate for fear of ruffling local political feathers. But Hoover knew they should have. And this was the exact leverage he could use if he ever chose to sow doubt about Johnson's ethics. FBI aide Deke DeLoach later observed that the relationship between Hoover and Johnson was codependent more than anything. He remembered, They were not deep personal friends by any stretch of the imagination. There was political distrust between the two of them, but they both needed each other. 
This relationship would be tested over two critical aspects of Johnson's presidency, civil rights and Vietnam. For the former, the director was completely at odds with the new president, but as far as Vietnam was concerned, the director had Johnson's ear. That was because the threat of communism felt as pressing as ever. And according to FBI aide Bill Sullivan, the president was almost as paranoid about the communist threat as Hoover. But first, civil rights took center stage. In 1964, violence flared across the South. President Johnson was as determined to pass legislation as JFK had been. This aligned LBJ with Attorney General Robert Kennedy. So when RFK suggested a COINTELPRO operation targeting the Ku Klux Klan, Johnson was on board. The disappearance of three civil rights activists in Mississippi pressed them to call on the FBI director for reinforcement. LBJ had two requests for Hoover, start a large operation to disband the Klan and send more agents to the South to respond to the violence in the meantime. While the director had been hesitant to open an FBI office in Mississippi, it was clear that the triple disappearance had the potential to become a PR nightmare for the president the longer it went unsolved. As a quote-unquote friend of the president, Hoover obliged. The FBI's mission to find the missing civil rights workers became known as Operation Myburn, or Mississippi Burning. Yet, even with ample resources, it took 44 days of investigation before an informant came forward. At that time, the FBI learned that the activists had been kidnapped and shot, and their bodies were buried at a construction site. However, the Bureau also realized that the informant had been a part of the kidnapping. He, along with everyone else charged with the crime, belonged to the KKK. It was an egregious blind spot. Everyone in Washington saw that the nation's best investigators had taken a long time to solve a case when the killers were working right alongside them. This, alongside other recent events, such as the tragic bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham the year prior, gave President Johnson leverage to push Hoover to surveil the Klan. Thus, in September of 1964, COINTELPRO White Hate was born. It targeted 17 different Klan groups and other extremist factions, like the American Nazi Party. Through tax audits and covert surveillance, the FBI sought to splinter smaller factions of the Klan, even small tactics, like embarrassing Klansmen via gossip about their friendships and marriages, were on the table. However, given the legal gray area of the operation, Hoover didn't provide the Attorney General or President Johnson with any detailed updates. But that might also have been because the director's attention wasn't so much on disbanding the Klan as it was on targeting civil rights activists. Hoover was still obsessed with, quote, neutralizing anyone he deemed threatening to American values. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had always fallen into this category, and once King was named Time Magazine's Man of the Year in 1964, Hoover's desire to curb the Reverend's influence only grew. 
The director's tactic had changed slightly, though, from when JFK was president. Instead of solely trying to paint MLK as a conduit of communism, now Hoover also hung the reverend's personal laundry out for all of Washington to see. Starting in early 1964 and over the next two years, Hoover initiated at least 14 more bugs on King and his friends, family, and female companions. Then, to shore up this effort, the director sent agents out to monitor nearly every aspect of King's public and private life. No finding was too small. For instance, when Hoover heard that King was under consideration for an honorary degree from Marquette University, a school that the director had also received an honorary degree from, he pressured the university to rescind the offer. But there were more serious instances as well. Hoover tried to block King from visiting the Pope at the Vatican and even made international efforts to smear the reverend ahead of receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. Before King arrived in Europe, Hoover dispatched briefs to various diplomats and ambassadors to alert them of King's alleged ties to communism in hopes they'd cancel hosting him. However, nothing compared to a letter sent to King himself, drafted within the Bureau. An excerpt from that letter reads, King, look into your heart. You know you are a complete fraud and a greater liability to all of us. You are no clergyman, and you know it. I repeat, you are a colossal fraud and an evil, vicious one at that. But you are done. Your honorary degrees, your Nobel Prize, what a grim farce, and other awards will not save you. King, I repeat, you are done. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. There is but one way out for you. You better take it before your filthy, abnormal, fraudulent self is bared to the nation. Not only was the unsigned letter essentially a ruthless call for King to die by suicide, but it was also a tool of psychological manipulation. The writer knew of the Reverend's past trauma of attempting suicide in his youth. Though it took years for the writer to be revealed, we know now that Bill Sullivan, Hoover's top aide, most likely drafted it with the help of his colleagues. Sullivan's letter, along with recordings of King's sexual encounters, was mailed to King's office in late November, where his wife Coretta eventually opened them. It was blackmail, and it was completely illegal. Coming up, support for Hoover begins to splinter. They're role models, nurturers, and to many, the ultimate best friend. But what happens when Mommy Dearest has a dark side, one that's more criminal than caring? Find out in the Spotify original from Parcast, Malicious Moms. 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of Malicious Moms. Every Sunday on Spotify, join me for a closer look at the moms who took their maternal instincts to illegal extremes. A beloved actress who would do anything for her child. A jilted ex who used her kids to take deadly revenge. Plus, a wife, a mistress, and an altercation with an axe you have to hear to believe. In this ParCast collection, learn the dire lengths some women went to help their children and how others used motherhood to carry out their misdeeds. Sometimes true crime can be a real mother. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. And now back to the story. In 1964, while J. Edgar Hoover was supposed to be weakening the Ku Klux Klan, the FBI instead engaged in the illegal blackmailing of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. At the time, bureau regulations mandated that taped conversations couldn't be disclosed to third parties. But Hoover placed himself above the very rules he was meant to enforce. When President Johnson found out that the FBI was blackmailing King, he asked for damage control. He wanted Hoover and King to meet to clear the air. But when they met, Hoover spent an hour lecturing the Reverend about the Bureau's former glories. The tapes and letter weren't even brought up. Afterward, their relationship froze back over. It certainly didn't help matters that RFK soon stepped down from his post as Attorney General to run for Senate. He was replaced by Nicholas Katzenbach, who was left to clean up the mess. Katzenbach later reflected on the circumstances that allowed Hoover to avoid any real punishment for the MLK tapes, as they'd come to be called. Katzenbach said Hoover was, quote, uniquely successful in having it both ways. He was protected from public criticism by having a theoretical superior who took responsibility for his work and was protected from his superior by his public reputation. Ultimately, President Johnson and the new AG answered for Hoover's work, but they were bound to Hoover under a similar fear of blackmail or political destruction. Katzenbach himself resigned as attorney general because of his stalemate with Hoover. After the suicide letter was mailed to MLK, Katzenbach asked LBJ to stop the King bugs, but Johnson wouldn't agree. Following his 1966 resignation, Katzenbach stated, I could no longer effectively serve as Attorney General because of Mr. Hoover's resentment towards me. There was also the matter of Hoover's public reputation. Much of Middle America supported the Bureau, They thought the FBI sought justice for all Americans, and Hoover was the figurehead. As author Kurt Gentry pointed out, 
When J. Edgar Hoover spoke about international communism and foreign conspiracies and the seduction of American youth, many experienced, knowledgeable men and women believed that he knew what he was talking about. Because of this, President Johnson became even more inclined to look the other way for Hoover's behavior. He needed Hoover's support as a way to appeal to middle America as he neared his 1964 campaign for re-election. The president's reliance on Hoover was evident. The two were in contact every day, as much as three times a day. That's likely because their plan required ongoing effort. The FBI worked to undermine LBJ's opponents, especially those in the Peace Party who opposed the war in Vietnam. Hoover took personal delight in this. Throughout the 60s, he claimed that anti-war groups were taking directions from the U.S. Communist Party. During the 64 election, the FBI also wiretapped the Goldwater campaign. Under orders from President Johnson, Hoover even had Goldwater's campaign plane bugged. LBJ's use of surveillance to swing the campaign was undoubtedly illegal, and he later faced scrutiny for it during congressional hearings in 1975. But it served its purpose. He was re-elected. During Johnson's next term, opposition to the Vietnam War grew, and so did the president's paranoia that communism was turning Americans against the war. As a result, Johnson wanted more intelligence on the entire American left. He gave Hoover the green light to keep investigating the anti-war movement and to investigate the black power movement. Over the next several years, FBI agents tried doggedly to provide evidence of Soviet financial support to the American anti-war and civil rights movements. For Hoover, the overlap of civil rights leaders who opposed the war was proof that both were under communist influence. And Johnson encouraged it. LBJ told Hoover, quote, keep your men busy to find the central connection. We'll find some central theme. In April of 1965, Hoover sent Johnson newspaper articles citing communist influence in the anti-war movement as proof they were on the right track. What the director didn't tell Johnson was that those articles had been written based on intelligence pamphlets published by the FBI. Hoover had created a feedback loop that benefited his own agenda. Take another instance. In 1965, a young mother from Detroit named Viola Liuzzo drove to Alabama to march in support of voting rights. As she drove, her car was run off the road by Klansmen. They shot and killed her. The public was outraged. Hoover's response? Smear and discredit Liuzzo. Hoover told President Johnson that Liuzzo had needle marks on her arm then sent his agents to scour for damaging information on Liuzzo's husband and fellow activists. For years after Liuzzo's death, troves of disparaging information circulated through the media. Newspapers reported she'd gone to Alabama in search of casual sex. Even the Ladies' Home Journal polled readers on whether Liuzzo was a competent mother. 
Later, Liuzzo's family requested access to the FBI files on her case and learned that these smears had been concocted by the director himself. Still, at the time, LBJ publicly praised the FBI for their swift solving of the Liuzzo case. But he omitted another crucial detail. The FBI had an informant in the car with the Klansmen who murdered Liuzzo. All attention was directed away from the fact that this informant did nothing to stop her murder. The director's revisionist history continued from there. Two years later, following the 1967 Detroit riots, Hoover was due to testify before the House Committee on Appropriations on the matter. He didn't have any evidence that the unrest in Michigan had stemmed from a larger communist conspiracy to overthrow the government. But knowing he stood before a committee that approved the FBI's annual budget, he dug his heels into vague generalities. Hoover told them, we should never overlook the activities of the communists and other subversive groups who attempt to inject themselves into the turmoil once it started. During that year, Hoover doubled down with this form of deflection. The summer of 1967 riots, when violent protests broke out across cities nationwide, had turned public attention back to the government, specifically how the president would address mounting racism and police brutality on black communities. J. Edgar Hoover, though, had little interest in using his men to investigate the root causes that propelled the protests, like poverty and inequality. Hoover did not want to engage in complex problem-solving. All he wanted was to neutralize the unrest. This pushed the director to incite his next COINTELPRO operation in August of 1967. COINTELPRO Black Hate, as it was called, directed 23 FBI field offices to, quote, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of black nationalist hate-type organizations. These operations were varying degrees of illegal, but certain loopholes allowed them to move forward. For one, the FBI was vague about what constituted a threat to national security. Meaning, if the director said black nationalist groups posed an imminent threat, he was able to target them without much oversight. And for COINTELPRO Black Hate specifically, the operation occurred under an increasingly resigned president who peddled an increasingly unpopular war. By 1968, Lyndon Johnson was overwhelmed by opposition to Vietnam. He even appeared to be convinced that his peers in Washington were spying on him and sowing disapproval to run him out of office. Surrounded by dissent, Johnson decided that the only way to stop the leaks was to turn the alleged surveillance back on his colleagues. So he asked Hoover for information on various senators, congressmen, and their staff. Notably, he wanted to monitor them for language resembling that of the Communist Party. Hoover obliged, of course, but it did little to help Johnson. When Robert F. Kennedy announced his intent to run for the Democratic nomination, Johnson's fate was sealed. By March of 1968, Johnson announced that he wouldn't run for re-election. Election aside, 
The months ahead proved to be a grim valley for politics. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis in April, and RFK was killed in Los Angeles two months later. The director didn't grieve the loss of his contemporaries. As protests erupted around Washington, D.C. following King's death, Hoover didn't even send agents out to manage the crowds. Instead, he went to the horse races in Baltimore. Hoover's detachment was probably because, to him, the writing was on the wall. An era was ending. Lyndon Johnson would soon leave the White House and likely be replaced by Richard Nixon. This left Hoover obsessing over what the future might hold for his career. On the other hand, with Nixon, Hoover might finally return to a more candid, equal relationship with the president that he hadn't had since Eisenhower. For all his calculations, though, the director was dead wrong. Coming up, Hoover's last stand. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And now, back to the story. While J. Edgar Hoover welcomed Richard Nixon's presidency, Many in Washington had grown tired of bowing to Hoover's power, including his own employees at the Bureau. One agent was quoted as saying Hoover remained the chief archivist of other people's filth. However, when Nixon took office, he kept Hoover on as director. He planned to announce Hoover's reappointment on the director's 74th birthday in January of 1969. And when Hoover insisted the reappointment be moved up to mid-December, Nixon obliged. After all, the director knew better than anyone where the bones were buried, especially those about himself. There was a tell-all expose on his career set to hit newsstands in late December of 1968, and Hoover wouldn't let that jeopardize his renewal. Nixon's willingness to oblige also reflected his desire to show a little goodwill. Nixon had first crossed paths with the Bureau back in 1937, when he was a young Duke University law graduate eager to become an FBI agent. Surprisingly, Nixon's application was broadly rejected because he lacked aggressiveness. Other sources claim that Hoover actually blamed budget cuts for not accepting Nixon. If Nixon held any bitterness towards the director, he never showed it. Whether his intention was to kill the director with kindness or simply appear to take the high road, the president made time for Hoover. Because more than anyone, Nixon knew the director craved the feeling of being equals. He had seen how Hoover grew ornery towards the end of Johnson's presidency and how the director used his power to tap into highly classified information. Hoover could either plug leaks or make them worse. To keep him happy was Nixon's best defense. 
So the two men waded into Nixon's first year with Hoover feeling enthusiastically supported, especially when it came to his surveillance of civil rights groups. Hoover's focus had zeroed in on the Black Panther Party. By the summer of 1969, he boldly claimed, the Black Panther Party without question represents the greatest threat to internal security of the country. This was his basis for directing agents to sow chaos and mistrust, both outside the group and from within. Externally, the FBI sent anonymous letters, burglarized party offices, and opened mail to gather information and to intimidate. This was done to support the larger campaign of smearing the Panthers' reputation on a national level. Agents also put the employers, landlords, and credit agencies of anyone they found affiliated with black nationalist groups on notice, in hopes of making it extremely difficult, if not impossible, for members to go about their daily lives. Additionally, the Bureau partnered with local police in cities nationwide to catch party leaders on minor charges and hold them indefinitely. Once a litany of infractions was piled on, those arrested often couldn't make bail. Hoover's obsession with, quote, neutralizing anyone associated with the Black Panther Party extended all the way to Hollywood. The director created a special COINTELPRO to target famed composer Leonard Bernstein for supporting fundraising efforts for the Panthers. Hoover was no stranger to the composer's politics. As early as the 1950s, Bernstein appeared on Hoover's ominous security index list. These were people he wanted detained without habeas corpus in the case of a national security crisis. In the early 70s, Bernstein showed renewed public support for the Black Panthers, and around the same time, he composed a new epic titled Mass for the dedication of the Kennedy Center. The theatrical piece was commissioned by Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis and contained anti-war themes. That's when Hoover saw his opportunity. The FBI warned that Mass was proof of Bernstein's desire to embarrassed the United States government. Hoover also engaged in a national campaign to out Bernstein, who was never open about his sexuality. Similarly, Hoover targeted other artists affiliated with the Panthers, like actress Jean Seberg. The FBI falsely claimed that Seberg had gotten pregnant by way of a man in the Black Panther Party while still married to her husband. As a result of the agency's pervasive campaign, she attempted suicide seven times before she ultimately took her own life in 1979. While the Bureau's tactics against the Panthers were often covert or by proxy, they grew undeniably violent in 1969. When the FBI learned that Chicago Panther Chairman Fred Hampton was being groomed to become the chief of the party, they enlisted Illinois State and Chicago police to quash his rise. At 21 years old, Hampton was young, but had already proved his savviness at organizing by forming the Rainbow Coalition, a collective of multiracial activist groups. To the director, Hampton's popularity seemed to indicate he could rally the movement and become the so-called messiah that might completely shift the balance of power. 
Not only did the Bureau supply the Chicago Police Department with intelligence on Hampton, it infiltrated his closest relationships. The FBI turned Hampton's bodyguard into an informant. Through this connection, they obtained detailed summaries of Hampton's schedule and daily routines. And then, agents secured a blueprint of his Chicago apartment. That information would be used to kill him. Illinois State and Chicago police raided Hampton's apartment in early December of 1969. He was shot twice in the head while unconscious in bed. He had no chance to defend himself. There was also evidence from Hampton's autopsy that a lethal amount of fentanyl was in his system at the time of death, which has led to the speculation that his bodyguard drugged him before he was killed. In Hoover's mind, though, neutralizing one key faction of the party wasn't enough. Even after Hampton's death, Hoover's agents continued to unleash psychological warfare on the Panthers, especially by turning members against each other. The Bureau found that if they painted the members they wanted to target as informants, party leadership would silence them first instead. But President Nixon wasn't impressed. Though Hoover's men were digging up dirt left and right, Nixon actually expressed disappointment with the quality of the intelligence coming to the Oval Office. From his vantage point, America was still on the brink of collapse. Though he championed a platform to pull American troops from Vietnam, his decision to invade Cambodia in the spring of 1970 only inflamed anti-war protests across the nation. One end result was the deadly shootings at Kent State. The truth is, Richard Nixon had an insatiable hunger for secrets, and it seemed like he believed that acquiring all the secrets he could might be his ticket to restoring law and order. This hunger for intelligence would soon lead to the creation of the Plumbers, his own squad aptly named for the leaks they were meant to plug. We can enjoy the irony in hindsight, given that their plot to bug the DNC headquarters at the Watergate complex would lead to Nixon's resignation. Nixon's request for more thorough intelligence wasn't just laid at the FBI's feet. The president also told the same to the NSA and Defense Intelligence Agency, but it was particularly insulting to Hoover. Especially since he had recently provided Nixon with a trove of information he'd requested on three liberal Supreme Court justices. In order for the president to make good on the campaign promises that got him elected, he wanted to replace one liberal justice to ensure a conservative majority on the court. And soon after, a government employee leaked damaging information on liberal justice Abe Fortas to Life magazine. Fortas eventually resigned from the court in 1969 because of the media frenzy. So when Nixon brought Hoover to the Oval Office, only to poo-poo the FBI's intelligence, Hoover reeled. The director would not support Nixon's new plan, which would require the FBI to work in tandem with the CIA and NSA. It didn't matter that the plan would grant the FBI nearly unchecked power for mail openings, electronic surveillance, and sending out moles. On principle alone, the director would not roll up his sleeves to work with the CIA. So he dissented 
angrily. Instead, Hoover insisted the FBI be allowed to pursue its own surveillance needs. He also chose that moment to dig in his heels on a familiar, though perhaps illogical, hill. He told Nixon that the Black Panther Party was being funded by the USSR by way of the American Communist Party. A totally false claim. However far-fetched, the director's insistence on pursuing the connection between communism and the American left never wavered, even in his final years at the Bureau. As Kurt Gentry observed, this was Hoover's only way to feel confident. It reflected the actions of a man who was, quote, cautious, wary, and obsessed with protecting his reputation. Hoover's power, while increasingly in name only, still had consequences, both for his own future and for the American people. As Tim Weiner found, quote, the Bureau's increasingly relentless focus on American political protests drained time and energy away from foreign counterintelligence. From 1966 to 1976, the FBI did not make a single major case of espionage against a Soviet spy. In light of their meeting, Nixon understood that he was dealing with a director who was becoming more petulant by the day. By 1970, Hoover was 75 years old. It was impossible to deny that he was no longer the fierce bulldog that he once was. As his agents dug their heels in to investigate movements like the Weathermen and the Black Panthers, the director seemed to fade into the background of the Bureau's daily operations. As one former agent put it, Hoover was really out of touch. He should have bowed out years before his death. Perhaps feeling the effects of his energy slowing down, the aging director made what he would later call his own fatal mistake. He promoted his aide, Bill Sullivan, to be his top commander. Originally known as the architect of COINTELPRO, Sullivan became the conduit for many of the Bureau's intelligence and criminal investigation programs. Many in Washington interpreted this as a sign that Hoover's time was coming to a close especially President Nixon. But even though rumors were rampant around Washington that the president wanted Hoover to retire, it was still an uphill battle. The director rejected the idea and attributed the retirement allegations to the inner circle of the president's cabinet. He claimed that a group of aides close to Nixon was trying to push him out. Seeing that Hoover still had some ferocity to strike back, Nixon decided to table the discussion of retirement temporarily. But the president could only delay the inevitable for so long, and the next year would place Hoover in the frying pan. In 1971, heat came upon him from all sides, his bureau colleagues, Congress, and of course, from the president himself. First, there was a momentous speech that sprang from Congressman Hale Boggs. After Boggs found a wiretap on his home phone, he stood before the House of Representatives and asked his constituents to call for Hoover's resignation. Though the tap ultimately didn't originate from the Bureau, as far as we know, it still sent shockwaves through Washington. Congress members on both sides of the aisle began to wonder if the director might be spying on them, too. Then in March, 
An FBI office in Pennsylvania was burglarized by a group known as the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. Over a thousand documents were stolen and leaked. Intimate details of COINTELPRO's targeting of civil rights activists and the anti-war movement were sent to the New York Times and Washington Post. The nation was shocked. In a matter of days, public opinion of the director took a 180. As Washington Post journalist Betty Medzger pointed out, before the burglary, quote, just about everything that was written about the FBI and Hoover up until this time was praise of Hoover, praise of the FBI, because people simply didn't know what was happening. Now, through the leaked documents, Americans learned what was really happening. Laid bare was proof of what Medzger calls Hoover's secret war on dissent. It looked nothing like justice and a lot like tyranny. President Nixon was left with one option. Hoover had to be forced out. The question was, would that cost him the 1972 election? Thanks for tuning in. Next time, we'll conclude our series with the final days of Hoover's career and the incredible fallout that came with the director's death. We'll also reflect on the impact that five decades in office had on the modern FBI and how there are still ghosts of J. Edgar Hoover lingering in our news cycle today. Amongst the many sources we used, we found Kurt Gentry's J. Edgar Hoover, the Man in the Secrets, and Tim Weiner's Enemies, a history of the FBI especially useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators, Conspiracy Theories, and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Dictators are Spotify originals from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators was written by Mackenzie Moore, with editing by Sarah Batchelor and Kate Gallagher. Fact-checking by Anya Bayerly, and research by Brian Petrus. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Carter Roy. For many, Sunday is a special day spent with family. That makes it the perfect time to check out the Spotify original from ParCast, Malicious Moms. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every Sunday in this ParCast collection, join me for an intimate look at the matriarchs who were far more criminal than caring. Warning, this isn't your mother's podcast. Follow Malicious Moms free and only on Spotify. Spotify.